Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef Ann Burrell. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. All right, everyone, we've got something new for you this week. This is a two-part shout-out for Martin's. One of the main reasons we started Beyond the Plate was to share the incredible work chefs and restaurateurs do to give back to their community. And one of the things we're proud of with all of our partners is their sense of social impact. So this week, Martin's is foregoing their normal brand mentioned time slot to allow us to shine a light on a grassroots organization doing great things. This is super cool. So stick around at the end of this episode. We're going to tell you about a Chicago couple and their incredible initiative called Grocery Run Club. Really quick, here's a few numbers for you. In 2020 alone, they supported nearly 5,000 community members by distributing over 37,000 pounds of fresh produce, almost 2,000 non-perishables, nearly 12,000 personal hygiene and cleaning supplies. That's good stuff. All right, more on Grocery Run Club and part two after my chat with Amberell. Hey everyone, I'm going to keep this intro rather short because we go through a lot in this episode. Anyhow, today's guest is a chef, author, TV personality, a teacher. I've been on set with Anne Burrell. She's an incredible teacher. She's very competitive. We talk about her competitive side. I thought I knew a lot about her culinary journey, but she's done a lot. We talk about how she gives back through fighting hunger, through her work with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. You probably know her from Worst Cooks in America or her early days on Iron Chef America. She's apprenticed at Michelin-starred restaurants in Italy. She was a culinary school teacher. She has cookbooks. Anyhow, We'll get into all this good stuff. So before we get going, we do have some awesome merch for you all, which you can find a link in your podcast player or beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have some tees and hooded sweatshirts and hats and beanies, so check those out. And please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Chef Amber. All right, Anne, let's start with a quick audio test. Can you name 10 pasta dishes for me? All right, we'll start off with one of my favorites, amatrashana, carbonara, um, cacio e pepe. So we've got Rome covered. Um, we've got orchiette with sausage and broccoli raw pesto. Okay, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just let you keep going. It's good. Now I'm hungry. Last time we talked, we were in Corona quarantine time. And this time we're talking, we're in Corona quarantine time. Uh, right. I mean... And it's so weird because you can't like really, I, I mean, I know that we're all supposed to be quarantining still, but it seems like people are not as much as they did before. And I mean, I will say I am probably guilty of this a bit myself, but it's also like I'm trying to go out sort of and, and support restaurants. So, you know, the eating outside thing, I think, has is I think it's something that should last all the time. I think it's kind of fun. Yeah. You know, it makes me feel like sort of almost like an opera ski situation or something. And, you know, mm -hmm. sitting outside and like so many restaurants have, have these cute little like yurt type things that I mean, I think it's really fun to sit outside of those. I love it. I love it. Have you learned anything new about yourself during this quarantine time? I know you were upstate and in the city a little bit doing a ton of cooking, obviously. 
Well, I mean, I will say what I've learned is that um, definitely in terms of clothes, I don't need nearly as many clothes (laughs) as I have. So I'm getting ready to do a giant purge of everything. And I mean, it's funny how life has just kind of gotten a lot smaller. Um, And so I think that Uh, the relationships that you keep during this time, you realize like how truly important they are um, and, and how to give those more like nurturing and love and attention than maybe we took that all for granted in the past. So, I mean, I think that's a lovely thing. It's been amazing to be able to spend so much time with my family, which I think, you know, when was when in my life ever, except for a pandemic, would I have gone to spend six months upstate with my family, when my my mom and my sister and her kids and, and my fiance and his son. So, I mean, it was uh, definitely an experience for me living with four teenagers because I hadn't done that since I was a teenager. So I'm like, whoa, okay. What did you learn from that? Well, I learned I have a much, I owe my mom, I guess, a, an apology. <laughs> But it's also interesting to learn, you know, just sort of how generationally teenagers are different than when, when, I mean, I'm going to say we, cause I'm older than you, but you know, just, uh, just a different generation of how teens look at the world and how they act in the world and how, you know, technology has made such a big difference on that. And thank God it has, because every time, you know, I'm trying to, to hook up to something like this or to anywhere. I'm like, Oh my God, where's a teenager? I need some help. Um, it makes me feel old. And then I look at like, you know, like my mom and stuff and I'm like, all right, you even go, you know, even past that. And I think, wow, you know, how hard it is for, for people of our parents' age to, to navigate the technology world. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, the the big joke used to be when when I was in high school, it was like, oh, mom, do I have to program the VCR for you again? And now I'm like, oh, no, I it's just like I feel like I, I feel myself turning into my mother daily. That's really funny. <laughs> what three words would you use to describe yourself? Oh boy. Oh geez. I should have remembered all this. I think of myself as, I like to think of myself as smart. You know, maybe I don't always um, exhibit that one. I like to think of myself as a caring and empathetic person. And I also think of myself as a bit of a badass. Love that. (laughs) Stuart, uh, your fiance, you got engaged over quarantine time. What three words would Stuart use to describe you? Oh, geez. Well, he's here. I mean, Stuart, Stuart, Stuart. He's ignoring me, I think. Well, I would like to think that he would use those the same words that I did. He might he might say also a bit reactionary. (laughs) But I mean, also like what chick isn't. But I would like to think that he would think I would say that I'm I'm smart, caring and uh, a badass. Yeah. Nice. Does he cook? No. 
Well, I mean, he 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 makes a very good tortilla española because he's uh, Stuart is British, but he's uh, also his mom was Spanish, so he's half Spanish. So he spent his childhood growing up in England and in Spain, so he's fluent in Spanish. And I, uh, which is, I love it when he speaks Spanish. And he also works at Udivision, which is the Spanish language station. So he gets to use the Spanish pretty regularly, which is great. But there was one time for work that he, I, I don't know, they were doing something wherever it was like a potluck something. And I was like, oh, I'll make the tortilla española for you. And I made it and it wasn't in the best pan. And so right as it was coming out of the oven and I turned it out, as Stuart comes around the corner in my kitchen, he's like, and I was like, oh no, because it was a little burned on the bottom. And I was like, all right, there's no way that I'm sending you to work with this. So I'm like, I I made an entire another one that came out perfectly. (laughs) But I was like, just the look on his face, I was like, Oh, because everyone's going to know that I made this and they're going to have like big expectations. Totally. Totally. Casanova, New York. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Can I tell you? Can it is. I'm texting Stuart to come here for a second. Once you do that, I want to hear you grew up in Casanova, but I want to I want to want to hear about Casanova and talk about like Burrell family suppers. And I don't know why I call it supper because I never call it supper. I just call it dinner. But anyway. Uh, me too. I mean, why is it like Sunday? It's like Sunday is only the supper day. I don't know why. But Casanova, New York was, I mean, it's a very small town. It's like 3,000 people. So you can imagine how well I fit in there. It is like a slice of Beaver Cleaverville. I mean, it's like, you know, flower boxes and American flags and Volvo station wagons. And you can go on vacation and leave your house unlocked for two weeks and it's probably fine. And anytime anyone's doing anything wrong, like the mom phone tree starts, which, you know, I was I was definitely on the mom phone tree, I'm sure quite a bit. But it was a it was a very sort of idyllic childhood. You know, it was we had a big house and we had a huge garden and my mom would say, like, go out and pick lettuce for dinner and that kind of stuff. So we had um, family dinner every single night. And my mom was a, a big stickler for table manners and stuff, which I hated at the time, but so appreciate it now. And, you know, it was like always our job to set the table and to clear the table and kind of clean up after dinner. No one could start eating until, you know, everyone was at the table and seated and ready to go, which weirdly now when I cook at home, my mom kind of forgets that rule. And I'm like, what? This was such a big thing when we were growing up. Like, why is it not now? Why are you standing at the counter eating off of your plate with your hands? Right. Or like, you know, and I do these dinners for like, we were nine people all together during the, the, when we were upstate and like the second dinner was ready. My mom's like, Oh, I gotta just take the dog for a quick walk. I gotta. And I'm like, what now? I mean, really? I mean, can't you just do that later? Like, oh, so, I mean, you know, it's hilarious. Your mom's, she's still in Casanova. My mom is still in Casanova and my sister lives there with her three children. So, you know, I mean, it was, I can understand why once my sister had kids, she wanted to move back there because we had a very nice growing up and small town life. You know, there's, there's something to be said for that. And you have a sister and a brother. 
I have a sister and a brother. And then we have another guy that we call a brother that graduated from high school with my sister the same year and had kind of a, a bummer of a home life. And so uh, my mom took him in and he's been part of our family ever since, oh, So, nice. which is nice. How yeah. nice. Is anyone else in the food industry? Well, no, not directly, but my sister is a dietitian and she teaches nutrition at Syracuse University. And uh, my family always says that Jane, my sister, makes food that's good for you and I make food that tastes good. <laughs> that's perfect. Did you help cook when you were young? Was it like going out to the garden and grabbing things and setting clearing the table or did you help in did you actually help in the kitchen? Um I mean not I didn't help with dinners on a regular basis. I mean like holiday stuff like Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, I remember Thanksgiving so well for so many years. We had this little teeny black and white TV that we would sit on the kitchen table and we would start my sister and I would start making toast for the stuffing. And then we would have our little cutting board. And it was like one of the only times that we got to use the sharp knife, you know, like a paring knife to, to cut toast squares. And my dad would make us uh, virgin bloody Marys at, uh, with clamato juice that he, he called uh, clam diggers. So, you know, my parents were clearly having real ones. And I mean, like, I loved that. I loved being a part of the help with that. People say they always remember their first. So let's do a, a quick speed round, which we usually do a speed round later, but let's do a speed round now of firsts. Okay. First food memory you have as a kid. My first food memory, oh geez, that's hard because my mom cooked all the time and I loved so much that she stuff that she made. But I was a big fan, even from a little kid of when she would make pasta. So whether it was like spaghetti and meatballs or sometimes she would make like her version of sort of fettuccine Alfredo or something like that. I loved it. And then in the summertime when we had like, you know, if you grow zucchini, you have 8 million zucchini. If you have one, you have a million. And so then like, you know, we had a freezer full of bananas a bread and, or uh, sorry, zucchini bread. And every time you'd go over to a friend's house, they'd be like, take a zucchini bread, you know, like. <laughs> not to interrupt the speed round, but you say fettuccine Alfredo, which just sparked a huge memory for me because when I was little, I used to always order fettuccine Alfredo and my Jewish mother would always, I always would never eat it. Cause I would say it's too cheesy. And then she would always return it to the, you know, and you would order every time you did this. Yeah. I was, and she, like, no one, I don't remember anyone saying like, stop ordering that. You do that every time. But I just remember like multiple times being like, it's too cheesy. I don't want it. Hilarious. We had in, cause my town was so little to go to uh, any sort of fancier restaurants. We'd have to drive like, I don't know, 15 minutes. And we used to go to this one restaurant called Grimaldi's Ristorante. And my dad would say like, now this is a very fancy place. It's called a Ristorante. And we're going to have an antipasto, which means before the pasta. And then, you know, so it was like the thing with like, you know, the, the salami, you know, that they would roll up into like the little cones and it had tuna fish on it and, you know, that kind of thing. And then you would get like the big, huge menus and you would open them up like this and all the pasta dishes were, were listed by number. And so I would order a lot of times I remember ordering number 39, which was pasta with butter. Wow. 
That's so funny that you remember that. 39. Right. I remember being as very fancy. It's yeah. this is Durante. <laughs> yeah, First thing you remember cooking. First thing I remember cooking, I think had to be something like eggs or pancakes, like Sunday breakfast before church on Sunday. First job. My first job was at uh, McDonald's where I got to, I was, I, I say now I was a fruiterier, <laughs> the fry cook, but I mean, I got to like make the French fries sometimes, but I like to do the, the cashier counter thing better because I got to talk to people. <laughs> Drive through, I hated doing because it was too stressful. Oh, really? Well, because it's like the the thing would beep and you'd have to step on something and talk. And I don't know, like once you got the hang of it, but like in the beginning, it made me very nervous. Yeah. First time you knew you made it as a chef. Oh, let's see. I think, well, the first time I was ever a chef of a restaurant where I had instituted my whole menu and I was like in this, this dark, like basement kitchen. And it was kind of all, it was a crappy restaurant all broken down. And I was like, no, I'm going to update this and, and put my stamp on it. And then there was one day that I just, I stood back and I saw all these people like working towards my mission and everyone for like, you know, the one minute in a day of a restaurant when everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm really the chef here. And I felt like I had earned that title for the first time. That's cool. How old were you? Um, I think I was about, I don't know, maybe 30 two, three, something like that. So you went to culinary school before that, right? So, yes. So I, from my little town, I mean, from Casnovia, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. So I went to college in Buffalo. I went to Canisius College and I got a bachelor's degree with a double major in English and communication, which just means I did poorly in two subjects. (laughs) I was, I was not a good student because I just didn't care. It wasn't anything that I was really psyched about. So I just didn't put that much effort into it. And so then I graduated from college and a couple of years later I decided to go to culinary school. You went to CIA. What'd you do in between those two years in between? So I started waitressing when I was a junior in college because I wanted to buy a car. And like a week in, I was like, oh man, this is for me. It's like restaurants, the island of the misfit toys. You have a pocket full of cash. You go out after work every night. and, And it was a great, really fun group of people that I worked with and we were all pretty tight. So I loved it. So I waitressed for for three years. So my junior and senior year of college and then a year after. I remember the day I graduated from college and I was like, yesterday I was a student. Today I'm a waitress. Uh, <laughs> and so I and so after I did that for a year, my parents were like, all right, Missy, you know, like let's get a job, real job. So I got just a, a terrible, miserable job as a physician headhunter. So it was all on the phone trying to recruit doctors for like positions. And it was just uh, it was so rotten and it was like in a miserable, like old school. So it was just dingy and 
every single day I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And it was during that time, I remember the exact minute I had an epiphany. Like I remember what I was wearing, what time it was, where I was, what the sky looked like, what the trees looked like. And I was like, I am 23 years old and I am too young to be this miserable. So I quit my that uh, headhunting job on the day that I started a year later so I could get my vacation pay. <laughs> and then, right, I'm like blonde, but not stupid. And I moved home after being out of the house for six years, which again, you know, once you're an adult child living away, you should never move home. <laughs> but uh, because for the CIA at that time, which I found the last time, I found out the last time that we spoke that we are fellow alumni. I love yes, that. Ma'am. But at that time, I'm not sure if it was the same for you, but you needed six months of working in a non-fast food kitchen and two letters of a recommendation of which I had neither. So I got a job as a prep cook and I was like, I'm going to wash the best lettuce that's ever been washed in the history of lettuce. You know, I'm going to clean the best shrimp. And so I did that for a year. And then, then I started the CIA and I loved, I tell you, I loved every minute of being a student there. Like it was one of the happiest times of my life. I could say, and and then I became a really good student. <laughs> Agreed. And that's how I was. I was never like a academic type. Like yeah. in high school, I went to a normal university for a couple of years and then I went to CIA and it was just fun for me. Like yeah. I didn't feel like I was working or studying or had to take a test or had to do something. It was all fascinating and interesting to me. Right. And it was like, I couldn't work hard enough. I couldn't know enough. Like I was a sponge and I was so thirsty for whatever they threw at me. Yeah. Agreed. And it's funny. They say like, get involved, do extracurricular activities. I mean, there's a club I feel like for every ingredient, there's like an avocado club and an orange club and everything. And I feel like I did most of those like after classes or before classes, depending on if I was AM or PM. And then you leave there and you're like, I should have done more. But, but you, right. you know, but you, so it's so funny. Have you been back to school? I, I remember we talked about this a little bit the last time. I, I mean, the CIA is so different than it was when I was there. And I mean, like, there's so much stuff like, you know, like just, I'm like, wow, it's like Shangri-La. And then I was like, oh my God. I mean, the students leaving this like Disneyland of the culinary world um, and then going to work in a restaurant has to be a giant letdown. Seriously. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think since we last spoke, I, I, I spoke on this panel for after CIA, I went to Florida International University in Miami for hospitality management. And I just did a, a panel discussion. They had me on for alumni or whatever from FIU. And one of the now chef instructors at CIA is, do you remember um, Chef Massey, Noble Massey from CIA? Was he there? I remember Chef Massey, but I never had him. So I think he's since unfortunately passed away, but his son is at FIU. And I saw his name on the screen. I was like, wait a second. 
Massey, like CIA, and he grew up in Poughkeepsie, which <laughs> kind of a rough spot. Yeah. Anyway, yes, we both loved our CIA experience. I really did, and and it's actually funny. In the last like couple of years, I've become really good friends with Lynn Ryan, who is married to Tim Ryan, who is the president of the CIA, and so I've gotten to to be friends with Tim Ryan as well. So that's been kind of nice, and so because of that, I've gone back to school a couple of times. And I actually got to do a demo in Danny Kate Theater, which was thrilling and so funny. I mean, I remember being in school and seeing Michael Chiarello do a demo. And then years later, I was on Next Iron Chef with him. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how funny. It's like, so you know, like there's so many little times when you're like, oh, I've made it as a chef. And, you know, it's like oh, I've made it. And then, you know, another thing comes along and I'm like, oh, what was I thinking before? Now I've really made it, you know, kind of stuff. That's funny. <laughs> we could probably drag this next portion out about everything you've done in, in your career in the kitchens and whatnot. But can you bullet out, you started to already, but like after CAA, like highlights, highlights of your career, if you will. Sure. So I, after I graduated from the CIA, I did another school program in Italy. So I went to Italy for a year. It was three months of school in, we did the culinary school in Barolo. I lived in the town of Asti, um, sorry, Alba. And then I worked in restaurants doing a stage, you know, working for free, but they had to house us and feed us in Umbria, Tuscany, and Liguria. And then I came back to the States and moved to New York City. And my first job in New York was at Felidia for Lydia Bastianich. And then I worked at Soho, at Savoy in Soho, which is no longer there, but that was really fun. And then I worked at Il Buco for a little bit. And I was kind of burnt out for from restaurants. So I started teaching culinary school. And that actually was the first time anyone called me chef. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm I, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this title. So I taught for like three plus years, and then went back out into the field. And that's where I was working at that little restaurant where I was a chef for the first time when it was all my menu and stuff. And after that, I worked at the Italian Wine Merchants, which is a wine store, but I did wine pairing dinners for lots and lots and lots of sort of organizations and stuff. And that's where I met Mario Batali. That's where I met Mario Batali. And that's why he asked me to be on his Iron Chef team. And so that's how that like food network started for me. And from there, I opened a restaurant in the West Village called Centro Vinoteca. And I think that's when the food network was like, oh, wow, this chick really can cook. Let's see if she can cook and talk. Not easy. Not easy in New York. No, 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 no. You know, you get a lot of people that can talk, but their cooking isn't as great as they're talking. Um, you know, so it's really very difficult to find that perfect mix of both of those. And so let's see, after Centro, then it's been kind of just like Food Network sort of ever since. Like it's, you know, like Secrets of a Restaurant Chef came along and then Worst Cooks in America came along and then another show called Chef Wanted. And then I've done, you know, 
tons of other stuff like you know next iron chef i've done chopped i've done beat bobby flay a million times i mean you know all those the best thing i ever ate all of those kind of things but throughout it all worst cooks has has kept on trucking and we just like shot seasons 21 and 22 so like season 21 is airing now which is cool so crazy Hey all, pardon the brief-ish interruption. We wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Imperfect Foods. If you know me or follow me on social media, you know I love Imperfect Foods. Thanks to them, they're offering you, the Beyond the Plate listeners, 30% off your first box. Enter the code Beyond the Plate at sign up. Some of you have already taken advantage of this. Nice work. All right, everyone, here's the deal. 40% of the food produced in the U.S. goes uneaten. So... Where does Imperfect Foods come in? They are an online grocer. They're on a mission to eliminate food waste and build a better food system for everyone. They source imperfect groceries, including ugly produce and surplus food, directly from farmers, growers, and food purveyors, and deliver these goods directly to your door through a customizable subscription service that's up to 30% cheaper than grocery stores. 30% cheaper, plus you're getting 30% off your first box. Not bad. Since launching in 2015, Imperfect Foods has recovered 139 million pounds of food and donated over 5.7 million pounds of food to food banks and nonprofits fighting hunger. Come on. I've been getting Imperfect Foods nearly every single week for about a year. I customize my box to get plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables for my kids and the whole family, quite frankly. And aside from that, I've received fish, chicken, pork, snack foods, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm gonna give a shout out to one of my favorite items. It's not fresh produce. It happens to be dried mango, unsweetened dried mango. I'm holding it in my hand. It's so good. I'm gonna read you what's on the back of the bag. I'm holding it in my hand right now. This dried mango is considered too dark from sun exposure to be sold in stores. The manufacturer buys entire orchards of fruit to support the grower financially, but this means that every year there's a percentage of crops that doesn't meet the color specifications of retail stores. Do you hear that everybody? It's still good. It's still delicious mango. It just doesn't meet the color specs. So they used to have to sell these as a loss as fruit paste to smoothie manufacturers. Now they get a fair price from Imperfect Foods and you get a healthy snack. Bravo, Imperfect Foods. Check out that dried mango when you sign up for your first box, everybody. To learn more about Imperfect Foods, please visit imperfectfoods.com and follow them on social media at Imperfect Foods. Again, for our Beyond the Plate listeners, for 30% off your first box order, enter code BEYONDTHEPLATE at sign up. Imperfect Foods, we thank you. Okay, back to my conversation with Chef Amberell. What was the inspiration behind going to Italy after CIA? Well, I really knew that I wanted European experience. Like I knew, I don't know why I knew this, but I knew that traveling was something that was so important and to experience as much stuff as I possibly could. And so while I was, you know, in fifth term um, at the CIA, I like, Somehow, I don't even really remember how I found this program, but to go to Italy cheap for like a year. And I was like, all right, 
I'm doing it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know how I was going to find the money to do it. But I was like, I, I'm going to do it. And it's so funny because people like my classmates at the CIA were like, Ugh, Italy, why are you going to Italy? Why not France? Like Italy's easy. And I was like, I don't know. I just wanted to go. I just want to go anywhere. And I was like, I, I got to see the world. Like I've got stuff I need to experience and do. And like what I thought of as Italian food, which, you know, coming from the Ristorante, Grimaldi's Ristorante was like nothing compared like that I experienced when I was actually in Italy. And I was like, oh my gosh, this, I love this so much more than I ever even knew that I could. And I really was like, wow, Italian food, if you want to ask, think about compare French and Italian food. Yes, they're very, very different kitchens, but the Italian kitchen is so ingredient based and so simple that if your ingredients and your cooking techniques are not on point, it is glaringly apparent. So I was like, you know, food isn't like, you know, it's not as much about the knife cuts, which are, yes, are always important and stuff, but it's not so much the manipulation of food rather than the letting food be itself mm. kind of thing. And that's hard to do. So when you got to Italy, did you look at all the menus and you're like, where's number 39? Where's number 39? And like anytime that they were like, oh, fettuccine Alfredo, oh, it's for a tourist. <laughs> 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 they would call funny. it uh, pasta con panna, like pasta with cream. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> so you come back to the States, you work for Lydia. Did you specifically want to work for a female chef or was that random? It was. I, I mean, it was a bonus for working with her. Um, but it, I mean, there were also not very many women chefs at the time to like try to search out to to work for. I mean, there were Lydia and then I think Anne Rosenzweig was the other one. And like those were pretty much the only female chefs of note. And when I moved to New York, I like I was so broke. I mean, I moved to New York with fifteen hundred dollars and had to, you know, put down your security deposit and all this stuff for your apartment. And then I was like, all right, I got to find a job. And like I just walked around Manhattan with a Zagat and my resume and just handed my resume out to places that I thought seemed interesting to work at. And so I trailed at probably, I don't know, five or six or seven places. I got hired at all of them. And of course, you know, Lydia's was like the closest to what I felt like I had just spent a year doing in Italy and that kind of stuff. And, you know, working for a, a, a woman chef was just sort of a, a bonus. Yeah. It's so interesting, crazy, fascinating, like hearing and seeing out these career paths because like going even further back, like, what if you crushed it at that headhunting job? I know. You know what I mean? right? like, what if you were <sighs> doing something there? Or like with the fast forwarding, you had the Zagat guy. Like, what if you went to another restaurant? Not Felidia. Right. What, what would I you mean, like now? You know, I, it's, it's so crazy. I, I know. You think about all this stuff that like the, the what ifs or what could have been kind of thing, you know, like. 
the reason I worked for, for Mario Vitale was because I answered an ad in the New York Times. I had no idea where I was faxing my resume to. Like, what if I hadn't looked at the paper that day? And what if I hadn't, like, sent my resume there or that kind of thing, you know? That's so crazy. I know. It's so bizarre. It's like sort of the sliding doors of the culinary world. Oh, wait, hang on. Stuart's here. Stuart. What three words would you use to describe me? <laughs> I know because I used three words to describe myself. And then I used three words that I thought the same three words, actually, that. So I want to see. <laughs> talented. Oh, talented is one. You don't. I, I mean, you already got me. So you don't have to. <laughs> talented. Um, explosive. Uh, ex talented explosive. See, reactionary was one I said. <laughs> oh, and charming. Okay. So, all right. Well, I mean, we're not hugely far off on that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think he'll disagree with badass, but he, I think he just, you know, I think he used to be. So, good I said smart, <laughs> empathetic, and badass. <laughs> and Stuart's saying, uh huh, uh -huh no. yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. Can't be saying thank you. thank you. Hey, so we were, I didn't realize that you, is this true that we were, we were Googling your, your on Cappy's plate. Are you involved with Zach the Baker in Miami? He was the episode that launched yesterday on the mm. podcast, but I recorded oh, with him okay. in February when we were there oh, for the for, festival. For South Beach, I did yeah. three episodes there that then like quarantine happened. I was like, so I was like holding on to them. And so that episode aired or published yesterday. Oh, nice. All right. Did, did I love that place. Are you? Yes. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. I mean, so like I haven't eaten bagels in a long time, but like I ate one, like I think every day that I was in Miami. He's an <laughs> interesting, interesting guy. That, that episode yes. is so fascinating. I mean, he hippie style, like lived around in hostels, went to Europe and different parts of Europe to learn. He, he wanted to learn how to make cheese, make bread and make wine. Like those are the three things he wanted to learn. Right. Well, you know, the things that are keys to happiness in life. Yeah. And then he wound up coming back and buying a deck oven and putting it in his friend's garage <laughs> and baking wow. bread out of his friend's garage. Literally. Wow. So crazy. That's wild. And he's kind Interesting. of like, and, and, you know, he's could have grown. I mean, he's, as you can imagine, he's gotten opportunity after opportunity to grow. And he's like, just doesn't have an interest in having more bakeries. He's like, maybe the time will come. He's like, I prefer to focus on getting better than bigger right now. He's like, I like my bakery. I like my team. See, you know what? That's just so not an attitude that is on the regular. I agree. You know, most people are like, all right, how can I, all right, this one is, is successful. How can I expand? Where's the next one? And I think that people do that sort of to the detriment of their businesses, like when they grow too fast. I agree. And I think a lot of chefs, few of them do it successfully. Some of them do it, unfortunately, close and learn a lesson and kind of like right. bring it back in. And so it was interesting. It was a fun conversation. He's a quirky, fun dude. Nice. I like that. Well, I had a nice conversation with him when I was in Miami. He's a, he's a, he is a nice guy and very yeah. interesting. Yeah, for sure. All right. We mentioned uh, Mario Iron Chef. You're competitive. No secret. <laughs> 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did not realize actually that I was quite as competitive as I am uh, until we started doing Iron Chef. Ah, but you like you win a lot. We were, I have to say that for a while there, we were the team to beat. Like we were the, you know, and I, I, it's so funny. I sort of have like, would have this like movie of us, like walking into kitchen stadium in my mind, you know, about like almost this slow motion of of Mario and Mark Ladner and I walking in and I would almost feel bad for the other team. (laughs) Because I'm like, we're going to win. That's so funny. I asked you this once before. A, do you hate losing? B, how long does it take you to get over a loss? Well, yes, I hate losing because I know in my heart that I can win. And when I don't win, I feel like a huge sense of disappointment in myself. And it takes me like even on worst cooks, because even when I'm not cooking and my recruits don't win, I still like I've taken the journey with these people to see where they have started to where they finish. And when they don't win that look that they give me and they turn around, you know, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I mean, like, I feel responsible that they lost. And I'm like, did I not write a good enough menu? Did, you know, like, and it's, I can't put my hands on anything. I can't taste anything. So really, I don't have anything to do with it. But I feel personally responsible. And so I try to always be a gracious loser. I have a hard time with it. It usually takes me like a day to like, all right, like Stuart even knows like, oh, all right, I got to leave you alone tonight. Uh, But, you know, there are times when like, you know, I think about like there was one season of Chopped that in the finals that I made it to the... I don't know, the second to last round or something. And the basket just got the best of me. And I still, to this day, noodle on. And that was like probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago or something. I still think about that. And, you know, like there was uh, unbeat Bobby Flay that, so I was cooking against Marcus to get past the first round to then cook against Bobby. And I didn't, I knew I had messed it up. And poor Scott Conan had to make that, decision and he was like don't kill me because he knows how competitive I am and I was like no I I I messed that up that was just you know like I will own it when I lose but like getting sent home from next iron chef mm, that one I feel like I should not have lost and I still to this day hold that to be true in my heart. And so whenever you see <laughs> that judge or producer, whoever you're like, mm, yeah, that might be a true story <laughs> for sure. So how do you handle or deal with obstacles in your career in general? Well, I mean, there's always obstacles in in a career. You know, nothing is ever as, as smooth and as perfect as you want it. I mean, you have to learn from those. You have to own your mistakes. You have to, you really, if you don't learn from obstacles and, and mistakes in your career and your life in general, it, it just, I think that speaks to people's character. You know what I mean? Like you really have to, it, it takes some self-awareness. It takes some self-search, self-searching and you know, you have to, you have to own them and learn from them. 
Yeah. Because there's always, always, always obstacles. Yeah, for sure. All right. This next segment is called, what would Rachel Ray ask Amber Al? Oh, yay. I'm actually doing a Zoom with her, like a Zoom happy hour uh, tomorrow night. I just love that, Rach. Is there cooking or are we just cheersing? No, or? she and I are just like, you know, having a catch up you know, like a, a happy hour catch up because Rachel uh, is actually also going to be or is one of the bridesmaids in my wedding. Oh, fun. I know. And she's like, I've never been a bridesmaid before. And I'm like, get out of here. So I'm super excited to just give her like the updates on what is going on with the wedding. And then also just to catch up with her and how's her new dog and how, you know, is, is life coming for her after the fire and what's going on to be rebuilding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's fun. That's so nice. She's going to love Yeah, that. no, Rachel and I are really actually friends outside of work. Yes, for sure. So she asks, favorite pandemic dish that you cook that you could eat every day? It's really funny because I've been trying to switch things up and, and not have too many repeats. But I made this dinner the other night. It was really simple, but so delicious. And it was like a cauliflower, butternut squash, and chickpea ragu. Mm, talk to me. I just got a fresh head of cauliflower and I have a kabocha squash. But anyway, I'm so right? curious well, about this. So, yeah, I mean, it was just you start off with with onions and garlic and I grated some ginger and then a bunch of um, toasted and ground cumin and then put in a can of crushed tomatoes, uh, chopped up a head of cauliflower pretty thin and uh, diced butternut squash about the same size as chickpeas, some bay leaf thyme and oh, and toasted ground fennel seeds and then got that all together and then cooked it down and added more water and cooked it down. So it was a nice, like almost like chili consistency. And then uh, I roasted uh, spaghetti squash. So so I just seared a couple of chicken breasts, and which I mean, I'm not even a huge chicken breast fan, but I was just like, oh, I'll just grab these, you know, whatever. Uh, and so uh, it was like, you know, some arugula salad down on the plate, the, the scraped spaghetti squash, the chicken, and then the cauliflower ragu on top of it. And it was so delicious. It really, I mean, maybe I was just really in the mood for it, but you know, it was really healthy as well. And it was like, oh my God, I could eat this every day. Yum. Now I'm going to have to like take the rough cut of this episode and listen to it tonight to like, I think I got it. I think I got it. <laughs> well, I could text you what it was if you want. Yeah. <laughs> this is random. But when you said chicken breasts, I use the sous vide immersion circulator every now and then. I know that's not very Italian. Do you ever use sous vide machine or no? No, no. I never Neither do. I was just curious here. No, I'm like, you know, I'm old school. I like, you know, like the thing about a sous vide, I think it, it's okay for restaurants, you know, but like it really does change the texture of proteins mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I don't love it. You know, like I, I that like sort of mushy sort of, you know, it's just not my jam. And it was, I was at a restaurant probably about a month ago and I got a braised lamb shank and I was like, ugh, you could tell it was so sous vide because it just was missing soul. It, it, I mean, it was tender, but there was no like brown food tastes good. There was like, you know, like the sauce didn't like cling to the lamb shank. It would just, I, to me, I was like, meh, you know, kind of, it just, 
it just lost so much. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really an old school kind of person. Like I get it in restaurants when, you know, if you want to cook chicken breasts like that and then just sear them and warm them up or whatever, because I mean, for, I guess for a sous vide, like a, a chicken breast is, is the best you could probably do with it because chicken breasts, you know, dry, like cardboard, no flavor and that kind of stuff. So sous videing a, a chicken breast is to me probably the only way I would ever really use that. Right. Yeah. That's how I mostly use it because Katie either it's like she cuts into the chicken when I make it and looks at it and it's like <laughs> underdone or overdone. Like, like, you know, it's never really perfect for me to be honest. So, um, just to need help. but like I was, I had a piece of like halibut the other night Now it took out the sous vide machine and I'm like, why am I sous vide this piece of fish for 30 or 45 minutes when it's like half inch right. or an inch and I could sear it for like a couple minutes aside and it's like great and done. And then just let it rest and it's perfect. You know what I mean? Like these are sort of like the cooking techniques that I feel like with all this technology, I feel like the food loses so much. Yeah. So many people asked lately about air fryers or instant pots and I'm like, I haven't used either. I get there's a time and a place for certain things. If you want to cook beans and an instant pot or something, I just, I don't know. I'm I don't know. It's really, <laughs> speaking of an air fryer, like uh, my publicist asked me, I'm like, oh, they want you on the like GMA, Good Morning America, to talk about an air fryer. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never cooked in an air fryer before. So I bought one. And then of course that uh, segment went away. So this air fryer has been sitting in the box in the foyer of my apartment for probably two months now. And I'm like moving soon. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to unpack this thing. I'll just do it in the next apartment. And I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious about the air fryer, I will say, because I feel like, you know, once you get the hang of that, I think there's probably some cool things that you can do in that, which keep things like I, I, I'm guessing, but I don't know for sure. I'll, I could get back to you on this, but I think things don't lose the soul as much as they would in as much as they do in a sous vide. Yeah, that's fair. You know, things can still be crunchy. Things can still be brown. You know, you don't miss those layers of textures and flavors and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. But I could be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> did, did you ever dabble in any of like the the Instagram quarantine like banana breads or sourdoughs of the world or not really? No, uh-uh. I'm not a banana bread fan. Ugh, like the smell of bananas when they um, get to be that like brown, like, oh yeah, banana bread, ban bananas. I'm like, ugh, get those away from me. I'm like, I hate the smell. I hate that smell. So banana bread, not my jam at all. And as far as sourdough goes, I mean, I was cooking for nine people every night. I was like, I, like, you I'm know, I've, I've got enough on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned ICE, uh, the culinary school. That, that's where you taught, right? Institute of Culinary yep. Education. Mm -hmm. You're a great teacher. I love watching you teach. And I think you mentioned you enjoy it. Do you ever see yourself teaching again? Um, I mean, I never will rule anything out. And I feel like I, I teach on Worst Cooks. I mean, that's what I do. Aside from, you know, playing lots of silly games and stuff like that, which are, are usually pretty fun. But I always, when we're coming up with those games and stuff, I'm always like, where are the teaching moments? Like, 
we need to have some purpose to these silly games. Otherwise, we're just getting people on TV to to do a bunch of silly things and to make them look silly, which I don't think is very nice. So I'm like, there's got to be. Yes, we can we can achieve both of those things. But would I ever go back to teaching? I mean, you know, whoever knows what happens with the Food Network and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, they might decide that they're done with the Amberell. And so maybe I would go back to teaching. I mean, these days, like the thought of going back to a restaurant is just not appealing to me. Plus, I mean, like, you know, I think it's going to take a long time for the restaurant industry to kind of dig itself out from where it is. So sadly, I mean, you know, it's heartbreaking. So I think, you know, I would never rule out teaching. I might like, you know, do something. I don't know if I would go back to a place like ICE per se, but maybe I would set up my own like really small, tiny school, something like that. I love it. I love it. Okay. So you mentioned season 21 and 22 of Worst Cooks. That's insane and amazing at the same time. You faced off against many different coaches. Yes. Bo McMillan, Robert Irvine, Tyler Florence, Bobby Flay, Rachel, Alex Guarnaschali, and Carla Hall. Carla Hall, Alton Brown. Was he on Worst Cooks? I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, I think that with that one, I mean, as much as I love Alton, I think that that was not exactly what he was expecting. And I don't know if he loved it so much. I mean, I, I enjoy working with Alton a lot, but, you know, Worst Cooks is like, it's, it's one of my favorite things every time I get a new co-host, even if it's a co-host has been there before. And some time has passed since they've been, they forget really just how bad these people are. I mean, like these people really, we don't fake any of oh, that. They're bad. I can attest. I've been on set a few times. Well, <laughs> for a few seasons, I should say, but you know, sometimes they do something and you look to someone you're like, you're like, I what know. the hell? And they're and like, just like, what is happening? Stuff like what say, stuff they do and right. And it's just like, I'm like, wow, I would have never thought to do that to food in a million years. <laughs> do any of those co-hosts make you, who makes you the most nervous? When it comes to the, the, the person that's beat me the most that really irritates me is Bobby. Okay. Like Bobby, I've beaten him once and I think he's beaten me three times. And I'm like, no, <laughs> again, you know, like Bobby is an insanely good cook, but it's also like on worst cooks. He, you know, we have very different teaching styles and, you know, he's much more hands off. I'm much more like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> as Stuart says, reactionary, or maybe that wasn't the word he used. Uh <laughs> <laughs> explosive I think <laughs> was the word and when he wins I'm like oh because you know we we position it as it's also a competition to see who's the better teacher and I'm like I know I'm a better teacher than Bobby <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny all right social impact and chefs giving back we touched upon restaurants and how unfortunate and crazy it is right now what everyone's going through and all of all of the guests on beyond the plate give back in in a lot of different ways quite frankly and it's one of the reasons why we love doing the podcast just to share that and you of course do a ton of charity work and giving back and things for organizations and whatnot so my question are there certain well i guess we'll start are there certain organizations or causes that are meaningful to you 
that you work with or give back to? Well, I mean, you know, anything that provides food to people that, and I, I hate this term so much because I think that it, it glosses over or it sort of politically correctifies, you know, the urgent need and it's for uh, food insecure, you know, like, no, it's not people. It's like, it's not that nice. Like people are hungry and people need food. Like, I don't think that we should sort of candy coat that there is so much food in this country that it, it is heartbreaking to me that there are people that don't have enough food and especially in these times. So like any sort of food bank, any sort of anything that will feed, you know, no kid hungry, city harvest, food bank, what is it? Feeding America, you know, all of those, anything that gets food into the mouths of people that needs it, you know, any sort of like school program that can make sure kids who, even if school is not in session, make sure kids get food, that kind of thing. And then the other one is JDRF, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. When I won Chopped All Stars, I won $75,000 for that because my nephew, Luke, is afflicted with type 1 diabetes. And so I've done some work with JDRF is usually one of my charities of choice. Got it. Got it. Why do you think chefs are all about giving back? Well, I mean, if you think about what chefs do in the first place, like we provide people, it's like hospitality. I mean, it's not just about, you know, oh, here's this fancy, fancy set, you know, wine. It's about providing a very basic need for people. And that is to, to restore them. And it's, it's always so interesting to me because the word restaurateur, you know, people think it's restaurateur. It is not, it is, do you remember this from gastronomy and culinary school? It's restaurateur to restore people. And so, you know, that's what we do. We provide people, we help people, we feed people. And, you know, it's a about, and hospitality is about providing for people like almost before they even know what they need. That's like, you know, high hospitality, but it's about giving. And so as a chef, my mom always hates when I say this, but I'm like, as a chef, I'm a professional pleasure provider. You know, <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> that's so funny. And so and true. Like it's, I mean, it's amazing. It, it is. It's amazing. And I've said this like a hundred times, but some people say, oh, I want to get involved with charity or nonprofit, but I, but I don't have like money to get. Well, you can do stuff like beyond you can money. do stuff with you know. your time. Yeah. I mean, like that is like one of the, the, when I was traveling through Sicily one time, I heard this saying because a lot of Sicilian recipes take so long to do and they're so intricate and it's making like little teeny tiny pieces of pasta by hand and that kind of stuff. But, you know, traditionally, historically, Sicily was, was very, very poor. And so there's this, I don't know how to, I don't remember how to say it in Italian, but it's like, I don't have money to spend on you, but I have time. And I think that's such a beautiful statement. That's fantastic. Amazing. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out with one last quote. I love speed rounds. What did you have for dinner last night? So last night, uh, we actually ordered out from a Mediterranean place called Shuka. 
And so I got like, um, we got like hummus and falafel and, and tahini veggie dips and that kind of stuff. And I had like a chicken sort of shawarma wrap kind of something. Fun. I feel like I just started following her on Instagram, the chef of, of Shuka. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. The smell of onions and garlic cooking. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Salmon cooking. Same. <laughs> What pisses you off in the kitchen? People that don't clean up after themselves. What makes you happy in the kitchen? When things come out just right and I or I taste something that I've made, I'm like, mm, yes. <laughs> Love that. What actress would you want to play Amber in a movie? Oh, gosh. Um, I would want someone fun who's fun uh, and someone a little, a little kooky. Oh, my gosh. Like my mind is blank at the second. Maybe Jennifer Lawrence. Like it. Because she, she's nutty. Yeah. She's fun. And fun, it seems. Totally. And hot. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we started this episode with the speed round of first. So for someone stepping into the kitchen, you always give great advice for for home cooks and, and beyond. But for someone stepping into the kitchen for the first time, what advice would you give to them? The the first thing that I would tell everyone, the first thing I tell anyone on Worst Cooks also is mise en place. What does it mean? It means put in place. It means read your recipe before you start. Make sure you have all of your ingredients. Make sure that you have all the correct equipment and make sure you have enough time to do it. So do all your prep work first and then start cooking. Awesome. Thank you again for your time. My pleasure. I appreciate it's it. It's always so nice to talk to you, Cappy. This was delightful. Hopefully we get to see each other in person in the future, near future. But right. Sometime in 21. Let's, yeah. ho- let's hope so. <laughs> right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Cappy. It's all nice right. to talk to you. Right. Have a good day. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. As promised, here's the story behind Grocery Run Club. Our partners at Martin's Potato Rolls have given up their time for us to celebrate the work of Lucy Angel and Jorge Saldariaga. They created Grocery Run Club to help people in their community. They organize, mobilize, and partner with people that are able to donate their time, money, and knowledge for the greater good of the city of Chicago. Most importantly, they supply fresh produce, other food items, and everyday necessities such as hygiene and cleaning supplies to underserved communities of Chicago. They believe that when basic human needs are met, it's easier to overcome the inequities of everyday life. If you'd like to learn more, donate, or volunteer, follow them on Instagram at Grocery Run Club or visit their website, groceryrunclub.com. Thank you again to Martins for allowing us to highlight good people doing great things. To learn more about Martins and check out some of their great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at potatorolls. They're also on Pinterest and YouTube, Martins and Grocery Run Club. We thank you. Thanks again to Chef Amberell. Find more on her at amberell.com. To learn more about Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, go to jdrf.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joey Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McClellan Me for her digital media skills. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. 
please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us this Friday for our last episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Eddie Vodka. We are joined one last time by one of the leading mixology minds in the world. Yeah, I said it. It's Tony Abuganen. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.